We're continuing in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, will be in verses 19 through 25 tonight, Um, continuing a section, picking up from last week, obviously, uh, where we talked about Christ's once and final uh, sufficient sacrifice for all men, for all time. We're going to talk a little bit tonight about the implications of that, uh, since we can have that confidence of that perfect sacrifice and that great high priest, Jesus Christ. What do we do in light of that? So I'm going to ask if you would stand, uh, if you're able, and we're going to read Scripture together. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You may have a seat, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this evening and this time that we get to gather together. Thank you for your living word that speaks to us and ministers to us, and Lord, gives us application for living. And I pray that our ears would be open and that our hearts would respond to what you have to say to us tonight, Lord. This is your message to your people. Would you have your way with it tonight? May you be edified, excuse me, may, may we be edified, may you be glorified through the work that is done here tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So a wonderful, wonderful section of scripture that is before us here tonight, and very familiar to most of you, uh, probably in light of the last three years, we've probably heard these verses a little bit more often. Uh, Ever since COVID and the shutting down of churches, this verse has been brought up time and time again. Uh, In light of churches opening back up, in calling people back into fellowship, in-person fellowship at church, the gathering together, the assembling of the saints. And so as we look at verse 19, it begins, therefore, which refers us to the previous verses and the message again from last week. And to sum it up, it's, it's basically this, that Christ has died and shed his blood, forgiveness for sins once and for all. No longer an Old Testament sacrificial system, no longer a yearly atonement, Uh, necessary for the forgiveness of sins, and not just a mere covering up of, but a full removal of the sins out of our life. And so, as we ended last week with verses 17 and 18, it says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so, in light of this, we come to our section Beyond uh, just a therefore in this section, it's actually a turning point in the book. Uh, Most of this book prior to this point has been a little bit more informational. It's been a little bit more uh, instructional rather than it has been practical. And this is a turning point. So from here through really the rest of this book, there's going to be a little greater emphasis on an application, on things that we can do rather than just an explanation of theological truths. 
And this verse also begins a warning uh, to the readers. And this book has had several of them, depending on how you divide the verses up and how you want to count the actual warnings. Here's just a quick overview. Warning one is a warning not to drift away from God's word. That's chapter two, verses one through four, if you're taking notes. Warning two is a danger of hard-heartedness and unresponsiveness. That's chapter three, verse seven, through chapter four, verse 13, and the warning of those who didn't enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief. Warning three is a danger of spiritual immaturity. Chapter five, verse 11, through chapter six, verse 12. And then a fourth warning here. Um, This is a, a danger of disloyalty to Christ. Uh, It's a warning not to fall away. It's a warning to to continue to persevere in the things of God. So again, verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, the Greek word parousia is confidence, but it also means boldness. It means assurance. It's used in chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And we can do that because we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, one who is tempted in in all ways as we were, yet without sin. And here in chapter 10, we can have confidence again. The following verses are going to tell us why. There's really two reasons if you're taking notes. The first is access, and the second is advocacy. Access in verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You recall that the holy place is the holy of holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle or the temple. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was, but ultimately where the very presence of God was known to reside. And we learned that the high priest was the only man who could enter into this place, and that only one time of year. But notice that we have confidence to enter. It's no longer just the high priest, but it's we. It's you and I. It's all believers. We have that access. And it's not with the blood of bulls and goats, but it's through the precious blood of the perfect spotless lamb, Jesus. Verse 20 continues by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And again, this is a new way. It reminds us of verse 9 from last week. He takes away the first in order to establish the second, it says. It's out with the old and in with the new, if you will. And how do we do that? We do that through the veil, that is, his flesh. And we know that the veil was speaking of, again, the tabernacle or the temple, and it was the curtain that separated the regular holy place from the holy of holies, And you recall that in the Gospels, when Jesus cried out from the cross and he yielded up his spirit as he cried out, it is finished, that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This giant curtain, this giant veil representing the barrier between God and man was rent in two through the death of Jesus. And it signifies to us that God has granted granted us access to himself. Again, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his son, Jesus Christ. There's no restrictions. We have full access. The second thing that we can have confidence in is advocacy. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. 
greater than Melchizedek, as we learned in chapter seven, not just a yearly high priest, one that was appointed by man, but a perpetual high priest, one that was appointed by God. By virtue of Jesus's priestly work and sacrifice, we no longer enter God's presence through a curtain. We enter through Jesus, our great high priest, over the house of God. And he is the priest over the house of God, it tells us. Oikos is the Greek word. It can be a physical dwelling, but by extension, it is the people that live in it people living in it or the people associated with it. You and I, brothers and sisters, are the household of God. Hebrews 3, verse 6 says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And 1 Timothy 3, 15, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And it's through these two things, access and advocacy, that you and I, brothers and sisters, have confidence, bold assurance, that we can enter to the throne of God and that we can approach him. We're going to take a look now at three different lettuces. That's not a vegetable that you eat in a salad, but it's an exhortation. The words, let us three different exhortations that are given to the believers in light of the confidence that they should have through this new and living way. In the light that we, all believers, are the house of God, living stones built upon the chief cornerstone of Christ. Now, these exhortations are anchored in the work of Jesus. That's what we just saw in these last couple verses. And we must always remember really how remarkable this is. How remarkable it is that no longer is it the yearly access, no longer is it through the high priest, that we can come anytime we want, we can come boldly to his throne. Now note that these are not merely commands that are meant to be followed. Um, They're exhortations, so let's look at them that way. They're not commands that are meant to be followed, but rather they're opportunities that we should not neglect. Notice the command is let us. It's not you It's not me or I. It's not something that we do as individuals, but it's a command that is communal. It is a command to the church. And so let us, number one, is in verse 22. And it says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The phrase draw near uh, is repeated from chapter 4, 16, if you're taking notes, and also chapter 7, 25. And here it contrasts with verse 1 of this chapter, which says that the yearly sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. We looked at that last week. They can never make perfect those who draw near. Before they couldn't, but now they can, in confidence, through the access, through the advocacy. And we're to do so with a sincere heart, aletheia in the Greek. It means true or real or genuine. That's the word for sincere. We can do that in full assurance of faith. The Greek idea is that we have complete certainty. There's no longer any doubt, but we have complete certainty. We don't wonder if we can draw near as the Israelites did. You know, back when the annual sacrifice was happening on the Day of Atonement, there was always the possibility that the sacrifice of the high priest wasn't accepted and that the sins weren't covered. 
And that priest had to first go and atone for his own sins before he could do so for the sins of the people and for the whole congregation. And so imagine that they were there waiting for the sacrifice to be accepted, but they didn't know, maybe twiddling their thumbs or chewing on their nails. They were just hoping, hoping that the sacrifice would be accepted. But that's not the case. We can draw near now with full assurance. Full assurance of faith has been a matter of Christian turmoil and some controversy throughout the centuries of the church. Many Christians struggle with certainty of their salvation. But the New Testament exhorts Christians to know they are saved. God grants assurance, not on the basis of a man's faith, but on the basis of Christ's faithfulness. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 5.13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The believer is to have full confidence, not in self or in personal faithfulness, but in the object of the faith, that is Jesus Christ. Verse 22 continues, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The idea of a heart sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water both allude to the Old Testament sacrificial system, specifically the Day of Atonement as well, where the priest would have a certain ceremony that he would have to do prior. He would have to go and cleanse himself, make atonement for his own sins by the slaughtering of an animal, but also by washing in a certain manner. There was a certain pattern that he had to do. And on that day, the priest would also sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat of God. And just as that blood purified God's people under the old covenant, the blood of Christ now purifies us under the new covenant. And unlike that, new, or that Old Testament system, Jesus' blood cleanses us with a superior power and efficiency. His blood, unlike that of bulls and goats, purifies the conscience. It cleanses from sin at our cores and it perfects our hearts. A couple weeks ago, we looked at a verse in Hebrews 9, 13 to 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to the living God? We can now have our conscience cleansed, not just the outward cleansing, but an inward cleansing and the cleansing of our conscience. And these Old Testament washings were required for cleanliness, but they could never make the worshiper truly clean. But this washing is with the pure water, the water of life, if you will, and it washes us completely. It's from all sin. It's a comprehensive cleaning. We can see washing, and it also may be a reference to Christian baptism. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can also see Acts 22, verse 16, for more on baptism as washing. So the second let us, verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is this confession of Christian hope? We could sum it up simply and say that the confession is that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus saves. 
We don't have to complicate it further than that. Notice that the writer of Hebrews does not reference a lengthy doctrinal statement. The confession on his mind is the central confession that Jesus saves sinners and that we as believers must never stray from that confession in any capacity. And so we connect the idea of hope back to several verses that we already covered in this book. Again, Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm to the end. And hope again in Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have as an anchor for our souls, a hope both sure and steadfast and one that enters within the veil. Hope is a Greek word, elpis. It's more than just a hope in a modern sense. A lot of times we think of it as uh, maybe just a wish or, or a dream. I, I really hope this will happen. But this hope is defined as something with substance. It's looking forward to in confident expectation. Looking forward to in confident expectation. And praise the Lord that the hope that we have is not based on our own merit, amen? amen? It's not based on our performance. It's based on his faithfulness alone. Jesus affirmed the Father's faithfulness in John 6, 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Also, no one who comes to Christ can ever be snatched out of his hand, John 10, 28. The security of God's protection and provision allows the church to hold fast this confession without wavering. And our third let us in verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Consider in the Greek is the idea of giving a careful consideration or to be concerned about. So this isn't a careless thought, but rather it's an intentional plan, an intentional plan that we have for how we can keep on caring for one another. In Matthew 7, verse 3, we just covered this uh, on Sunday a few weeks back. It says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The word notice is that same Greek word about being concerned. So we could render it, but why are you not concerned about the log that is in your own eye? We should be concerned about the log in our own eye. I hope we would be. But here in Hebrews, it says that we're to consider that is with a level of concern, we are to consider how to stimulate one another. Notice that it doesn't say how to stimulate ourselves. The focus isn't on us, but the focus is on one another. We're given the command in Philippians 2, 3, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but rather in humility of mind to regard one another as more important than our, that, that was a little weak, even from Pastor Michael, as more important than ourselves. That's the attitude that we are to have, to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And this is what we're supposed to do here in Hebrews 10. Verse 24 says, how to stimulate one another, that's New American Standard, how to spur one another on, NIV, how to stir up one another in the ESV, or how to provoke King James. The translations are all summed up in the single Greek word paraxismos, P-A-R-A-X-S-Y-S-M-O-S. 
Yes, I did spell that right. It's hard to believe. But paroxysmos. Now, this word can vary in meaning, but it can be, uh, on, on the lighter end, it can mean encouragement, but on the stronger end, it can actually mean a sharp disagreement. The only other time that it's used in Scripture is in Acts 15. Why don't you turn there for a second? Acts 15. We'll pick it up in verse 36, 35, 36, somewhere there. 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. In verse 39, it says that there was such a sharp disagreement. Those two words are that single Greek word, paroxysmos. Uh, if you want, underline that in your Bible, write Hebrews 10, 24. It's the same verse there. So the idea is that there's this range again from encouragement on, on the lighter side to sharp disagreement on the more intense side. The root word of this word is to provoke or to urge on or to incite. And I think that uh, the NASB actually, when it says how to stimulate one another, it's actually maybe a little uh, light on the meaning or the usage of that word. Maybe some of the other translations have it better with incite or provoke. It has a little bit of a, of a richer meaning there. You can go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 10. And if you want to underline verse 24 and the word stimulate or provoke or stir up, you can write Acts 15, 39. But what happened there? There was a sharp disagreement between these two, and they ended up parting ways and, and uh, going in different directions. And it seems that there's a negative uh, outcome at first. I would say in today's time, if we hear that there was a sharp disagreement, it's not going to end well, right? Sharp disagreement is probably going to mean some kind of a falling out. You're going to get unfriended on Facebook. You're going to stop uh, receiving calls and texts back, right? That's it. End of story. When the sharp disagreement happens, we just cut people off nowadays. Not so with Paul. Actually, later uh, in some of uh, his letters, Colossians 4, verse 10, and 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, if you're taking notes, Paul actually commends John Mark, the one that he chose not to take, the one that did desert them and the one that there was a sharp disagreement over. So it wasn't a complete falling out. The Lord worked in it, and the Lord restored it. And interestingly enough, we can actually look and, and see that these uh, two duos, if you will, went off, and instead of being one missionary journey, there was actually two that were spurred on. And so the Lord can take those negative things and turn them into something good. And so let's kind of take that focus that uh, this kind of uh, stimulation or provocation or stirring up or inciting can actually be something that is used for good. So it's in a good sense in verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. And it's really for our benefit as believers. That's the reason why it's, it's instructed of us. We are prone to wander, are we not? And we need these commands to stimulate one another and we need one another to encourage us. Again, when we think of the word incite, we often think of 
uh, inciting a riot. That, again, often doesn't have a, a great connotation to it, but the dictionary definition of incite is to stir, to encourage, to urge on, or to stimulate or prompt to an action. There's no negative connotation that we see there. We think of the word provoke, it could be a similar thing that we generally think of it as negative. We can think sometimes an animal attacks someone because it was provoked, right? And it was always the fault of the person that did the provoking. Well, that's why that happened. And again, more a negative thing, but I don't know that that's what this is talking about here. So what's a good type of provoking, you might ask? I'll give you maybe another two examples from uh, the animal world. How many are familiar with a cattle prod? Most of you know I grew up in Norco, so I'm a little, there you go, a few hands. Cattle prod is this stick, baton, if you will, and it's got a uh, electric charge to it. And if you have an unruly cow or other animal that's not doing what you want it to do, you just give it a little zap, and a jolt of electricity goes into that cow in it, it starts jumping pretty quick, okay? It, it gets up and it moves. That's sort of the idea here is that sometimes we need this stimulation. Sometimes we need this provocation and we need to be poked. Maybe we need to be zapped by our brother and sister. And we might not always take it as this uh, great loving encouragement and a, and a pat on the back. Hey just, hey, just keep up the faith, brother. Sometimes that works and there is a place for that. But other times there's, uh, there's a place for a little bit more of a prodding. Something that's a little bit deeper, if you will. We can also think of a shepherd's staff or a rod. And we see, you know, the famous pictures of Jesus carrying that and, you know, holding the lamb. And it can be used as a nice tool to help guide the sheep where it needs to go, but it can also be used for correction. But it's ultimately for the sheep's good. We know that the shepherd has the sheep's ultimate best interest in mind. He knows best and he's going to encourage it where it needs to go to get it to go in the right direction, if you will. But we could say that a shepherd would use it to provoke or to stimulate or to incite a sheep to get it where it needs to go. Do you guys see the picture here? Hopefully, a few heads nodding. And we are supposed to do the same to one another, brothers and sisters. We are supposed to stir one another up, to incite, to provoke one another, to love and to good deeds. And a question I asked myself this week, a, a note I had actually written in my Bible years ago. It's kind of dangerous when you write notes like these and challenge yourself. But it says, what am I stirring up in others? And I'll ask the same of you. What is it that you are stirring up in others? Are you stirring them up to love and to good deeds? Might you be stirring up negative things, contention, strife? Many of us know others that do that. Hopefully it's not us. But keep that in mind. Ask yourself that this week. What is it that I am stirring up in others? And we're to stir up to love. Agape is the Greek word, which most of you are familiar with, has a rich, deep meaning. And really, we could sum it up as saying it's God's love as opposed to the world's way of love. It's an unconditional love. It's a perfect love. And notice that the last three verses that we covered, uh, 22, 23, and 24, there were three words that appeared, a trinity, if you will. Those words are faith, hope, and love. Verse 22 says, assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the assurance of faith. Verse 23 says the confession of our hope. And verse 24 says love and good deeds. Again, this trinity, if you will, appears very frequently in the New Testament. Most of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, 
faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest is love. But also Colossians 1, 4 through 5, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of our God and our Father. And so faith and hope are important aspects of the Christian life, but again, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, the greatest is love. And the first two are generally inner attitudes, inner beliefs that we have, that we possess. But love is outward. Love is a verb. Love is an action. And as we look back to each of these three lettuces, it says that, uh, or it's important to note that each one of us is a call for us to do something as the church. The call isn't to you individually. Most of the time we see that through scripture. There's a command to the individual, to a singular person. But the command here is let us, the writer saying. Let us do this together. Let us do it in fellowship. Let us do it in community, if you will. And in light of that, the author gives us our final verse, 25. Don't get too excited. We're not close to being done yet, but it is the final verse. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We see here the prescription, if you will, for how we are to exercise these three exhortations, and that is through Christian fellowship. Provoking one another to love and to good works provides being with one another, does it not? It's hard to provoke someone else if you're on your own, unless it's through social media. I guess that's popular nowadays, but, and that's provoking in a bad way. That's a whole other story. But it's important to note that Christian perseverance is a community endeavor. And that's sort of where we get the title for tonight's message. Christian perseverance is a community endeavor. It cannot be achieved alone. Many will try, many have tried, many will still try, but it's really impossible. And because the church is the God-prescribed organization that is designed to help us, it's designed to help us get to full maturity. It's designed to help us to persevere to the end. And perseverance is so, so important in our faith. Ultimately, it's God who grants us that perseverance, though. We see this in Romans 15, verses 4 to 5. It says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That even there, it brings up the idea of being of the same mind with one another. We need one another to persevere, brothers and sisters. And as we think of the church, we know that it's much more than this building that we are in. It's much more than the, the address at 1009 Arsenal Way in the city of Corona. The church is us. It is the believers. It is the saints. It is those of us that are gathered here tonight, persevering together, if you will. That is the church. And undoubtedly, you've heard over the past years the importance of the church being assembled together, have you not? This gathering is, is really vital to our spiritual walk, as we see here in this chapter. 
And I know that most of the pastors here have exhorted this from this very pulpit um, ever since COVID happened a few years ago, that this gathering is vital, that this is important what we do here together. Pastor Shane talked about that a little bit at the end of worship and, and before I came up here. It's vital that we come together with one another, that we sing praises together in the same room, not alone. We talked about persecution that's going on around the world. And I, I love how Pastor Shane mentioned that we get in our fancy cars with air conditioning and get our Starbucks and we come here and sit in nice, soft, padded pews with air conditioning and lights. And it's wonderful to have those blessings and those privileges. But at the same time, we have people that still can't be troubled to come, as easy as it is. And there are brothers and sisters all over the world, not just in India, but specifically right now as we see what's going on. These people that have had their families killed in front of them, quite literally. They've been displaced. They've had their churches burned down. And they're living in sort of refugee camps, makeshift. And they're holding church services together still. Because they understand, I believe, the importance of persevering to the end. And they're practicing these exhortations that are here. They're not neglecting the assembly and the gathering together. But we live in a world where church is sadly neglected, uh, even amongst Christians. And it's become something that believers attend rather than they are a part of. Some Christians have made church a spectator sport where they show up and they just try to get what they can for their own personal benefit. They come when they feel like, they leave when they feel like. And they're not involved in anything else. They're not involved in the life of the body and what's happening in the church. And the recipients of this letter were in the same boat and they were told not to forsake, not to forsake the gathering. In the Greek, it means to abandon, to desert, or to leave behind. And the assembling together is the single Greek word Episynagoge. It's where we get the word synagogue, if that sounds a little familiar to you. It is a noun, and it just means the gathering. It is the gathering of believers. It is the gathering of the early church. The root uh, of the original word means the gathering place or the congregation of Israel. Again, synagogue. It was, it was the place where they would come together. They would conduct their services. They would meet together. They would worship together. They would learn they would devote themselves to the study of the word of God. And it goes on to say that forsaking the gathering is the habit of some. Some translations say that it is the custom. Now we know that there was some persecution of the Jewish people at this time, and that's who this letter is uh, written to. And some may have felt that it was a little easier, it was a little safer not to be a part of church anymore, not to attend. Maybe it was more pragmatic reasons that they just decided, ah, oh, it's just a little too... It's a little too difficult for me to subject myself to. Maybe it was self-preservation. Maybe they just didn't want to look bad in society. Could have been at that end of the spectrum too. There's a lot of evidence for the persecution, but we can't say exactly for sure what was going on and why they weren't meeting, but we know that it was a habit. It was a custom. And there's nothing new under the sun, is there? It seems no different than the church 2,000 years ago. And especially in the last three years, we have seen, sadly, a decline in the number of people at church. Churches have been shut down for extended periods. Some even have unfortunately shut permanently. 
I'll ask you to take a uh, mental trip with me down memory lane for those of you that were here at Living Truth in the month of March, 2020. So on March 16th, the White House issued a stay-at-home order for the nation because of the COVID pandemic. I actually put pandemic in my notes. I'll just go ahead and say it. The COVID pandemic. We were told 15 days we were going to slow the spread. And on March 18th, was a Wednesday night, just two days later, we had our first service here in this building with no one in the pews. You can go back and find that on YouTube. I just watched that over the last couple days. It's quite interesting. Pastor Shane looks great. Pastor Matthew had a shaved bald head at that time. Pastor Rizzi had a beard. But we were talking about this new thing we had to do. And Pastor Mike stood right here and gave announcements and talked about uh, this new virus that was out there and, and what the county and what the state were asking us to do in closing down. And so we shut down the church for a period of time and we, we streamed our first service on March 18th. But it was shortly after, just within a few weeks, that the pastors and elders uh, started to get stirred up. See the connection there? Stirred up. And there was a conviction that we couldn't in good conscience keep the doors of this building locked and closed. We just couldn't do it anymore because it was a violation of this scripture, amongst some other things. And especially in a time like that, how could we lock the doors and keep people out that were hurting and that were scared and that needed to be stirred up and needed to be incited and provoked to love and to good deeds? And do you remember when we came back here, it was May 31st, that was Pentecost Sunday, it was about six weeks after we closed down. We took reservations to come into the church. Anyone remember that? You had to go on and sign up online. It's almost comical to go back and watch these things now. I would encourage you all to do that. Watch some of our early services and even just the announcements that go before them. Actually, April did announcements, I think, on our, our first service. It was uh, it's very interesting. But we opened the doors and we, we came back in and it was a breath of fresh air, was it not? Yes. When we got to come back with God's people in this building, there was something about that. And it's because it's commanded in scripture. It's something that we were designed for and created for. It's not just merely a kind suggestion like, hey, you'll feel better about yourselves if you gather with God's people. But no, it's essential to our faith. It's really something that we must, we must do. But one unfortunate consequence of that, at least six weeks when we shut down and other churches shut down a, a little bit longer than that, is that habits were developed. And we know that there's good habits and there's bad habits. But the unfortunate outcome is that bad habits developed and that there was the beginning of the forsaking of the gathering. And I'll say with you know, all sincerity that those were trying times for us all. Again, going back and watching those, I put myself in, in uh, the mindset that we had in those days, not knowing what in the heck this virus was. And, and there was legitimate fear and there was legitimate need uh, to be cautious. We had church members that were sick. We had church members with compromised immune systems and you know, people that worked maybe in hospital settings. Uh, my own wife was six months pregnant at the time with our first child. So I was uh, concerned myself, right, about going out and what we were going to do. But we as a church decided that we needed to gather together, that we needed to come together and not forsake the gathering. For some, though, however, it became a little bit of a low priority. It just became something that, that they didn't do, even when the church doors opened. And 
why wouldn't it be something that we didn't do? And we have the wonder of YouTube. And to all of those of you watching, we are glad that you're able to, to join us in that way and that you're able to participate. But isn't it wonderful that you can stream the service from your couch at home? Remember that in the early days? I think we had Easter at home on the couch. You could roll out of bed in your PJs and have your bowl of Lucky Charms and watch Pastor Michael. I remember, uh, I remember pausing a couple times to go you know, in the other room and refill the cup of coffee or whatever it was. It was glorious. I wish we could do that here on a Sunday morning. I keep, if you see me pointing like you at this on a Sunday morning, that means stop. Let me go get my coffee. But do you see how easy it is to fall into those habits? How many of us did that? You can just raise your hands and say, it was really nice. It was actually comfortable. There was a a point that we really missed the church and we were, of course, sad not to be together and we wanted to be back. But at the same time, it was like kind of walking this tightrope. It's like, I kind of want to be here, but this is also really nice too. It's kind of nice to be over here and, and have this going on. But the one thing I couldn't do at home, even though I could pause Pastor Michael, I couldn't worship together with you guys. I couldn't see smiling faces. I couldn't give hugs. I couldn't give handshakes. I couldn't carry out these verses, nor be the recipient of those verses carried out on me. I couldn't be encouraged, and I couldn't encourage others. And when we don't actively work at creating a good habit, the natural outcome is that we will fall into bad habits. Have you all experienced that or witnessed that? Not just with this topic, but pretty much anything else in life. When gathering as a church doesn't become the priority, something else will become a priority in our lives. Something else will take the place. Life gets in the way. We have school, we have work, we have sports, we have leisure time, we have vacations, we have friends, we have family. We have so many other things going on, vying for our attention, tugging us in one direction and the next. And that whole first year after we opened, I would say our attendance stayed low. We had one service. Do you guys remember the single service? And it was packed in here at one point. It was awesome to be all together as one body. Sometimes today we have people that come to first service and not second, and they don't even know who in the heck is there at second service. It might be their next door neighbor, and they have no clue that they actually go to the same church. So there was a beauty when we were together in one service. But church attendance was low. Um, And I want to be sensitive again to those that were staying home for legitimate reasons, and there was certainly... Uh, reasons for people to do that. But I will tell you that uh, being in a leadership position in the church, when we talk to people, that percentage of people that had true legitimate health concerns is actually a pretty low number. And doesn't discount those. Hear me on that, I'm, I'm be clear, but it was actually a low number. The greater percentage were those that just chose not to come back because it was easy and because other things got in the way and the bad habits had formed. I want to just say that we had two uh, brothers that recently went home to be with the Lord, Dave Richards, that you saw, and also uh, Chappie, Paul Hartson. Some of you uh, knew both of them. One thing that I will say about those men is that they had an earnest desire to be here in church. Even with what they were going through, both of them fought long, tough battles with cancer, multiple bouts, multiple rounds over and over. But those men were the true epitome of these verses here. As often as they could, they didn't forsake the gathering. They didn't forsake the assembly. And they were encouraging one another. They would pray for us. 
And it was really a, a beautiful sight and it was a, a beautiful testimony. And as people trickled back, you know, one of the, the things that we heard the most is people say, I can't believe I stayed away this long. Maybe people waited three months, six months, one year, two years. They said, I can't believe I waited this long. And then they came here to a service and they experienced what they had been missing and they left and they said, I, I can't believe I missed this. This is exactly what I needed. I was talking with Shane a little bit earlier. And you know that the one thing that we haven't heard yet is someone come back into in-person fellowship and say, I'm really glad I stayed away as long as I did. That's the one thing that we just haven't heard. And maybe some of you even stayed away a little bit longer. And it was probably at the stirring up and the provocation of others that maybe got you back here, was it not? And praise God for that. That's the purpose of this. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment for those that maybe stayed away. Everyone was trying to navigate and make their own personal decision according to their own conscience. But that's the reason that we have verses like this, is to stir up one another and to get us back, to even correct us when we, when we err, when we sin, etc. There are so many different things. And church attendance isn't the end all, though. We know that, right? But it's church involvement. It's not just coming and attending and watching but it's participating. Amen. We talked earlier about when you go from sitting in rows to being in circles, not just coming as a spectator, but hopefully you're involved in some sort of Bible study, some sort of small group. Hopefully you're serving in some capacity at this church where you're around one another, where you get to encourage one another and you get to be encouraged. And I don't say all these things to try to guilt people to coming back into the building. You know, Pastor Shane mentioned this. This room is relatively empty on a Wednesday night compared to a Sunday. And we take account every Wednesday and every Sunday of the people that are here, but that's not our focus. Our sole focus is not attendance and numbers. I'd say that our sole focus is souls. Souls are our sole focus. And that the pastors and elders and, and leaders here of this church, we exhort you to be here in fellowship, not because we want you here. We don't get anything out of it, but we know that you need it. We know that scripture commands it, and we know that it is important for your soul and for your faith and your spiritual walk. And as what sadly happened with a lot of people that, um, that didn't come, some of them even drifted away and, and aren't attending church. I, I know people, not from this fellowship personally, but others that their church closed down and, and they don't attend church anymore, period. They maybe got even a little bit hurt or a little bit burned with some of the things that happen with church closures and they, they drifted away. And I don't really know any people that wake up one day and just decide, I'm, I'm gonna drift away from my faith. But it's usually a little bit more of a slow fade, is it not? And I think, sadly, we've, we've all known people in, in that boat, but that's the reason that this exhortation is here in Hebrews. The author knew that it was the habit of some that people were starting to do this. They were starting to forsake the assembling together. It became their new habit, and the exhortation is not to do that. Don't fall into the trap. And beyond just neglecting the assembly, what I think the author is getting at here is really the risk of just falling away from the faith. We'll tackle some tougher verses next week as well, um, and we've seen that before, and it's, it's gonna be a good study as we look at that, but these things are all tied together. As we think of persecution, if these believers were forsaking the gathering and, and not coming together in the midst of persecution, 
What happens when things go from bad to worse? Which scripture tells us will happen. And I think about us today at Living Truth and the city of Corona or even the churches here. When we have a mild inconvenience, I wouldn't even call it a persecution, but when we have a mild inconvenience of the church closing down, if we can't stay faithful, how do we stay faithful to the end? And we can't do it alone. We can't do it as our own little island, but we need one another. The last half of verse 25 says, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we need to encourage one another. We need to stimulate, to provoke, to stir up one another as we see the day drawing near. Refers to the day of the Lord or or Christ's return. Read from Matthew 24. It says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars so that you are not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Amen? And we need one another so that we can endure to the end. We need to endure. We need to persevere. Things are only going to get worse in our times. They're bad now, but they're going to go from bad to worse in our times and beyond. Our God didn't just suggest that we go to church, by the way. He commanded it. And it wasn't just something that's to help us feel good. And it really begs the question, what is the church? The church is Jesus' body. It is you and I as believers, I mentioned earlier, as, as living stones being knit together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the head of the church, we're told in Colossians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 12 gives us a metaphor of the church as a body. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many skipping all the way down to the end of the chapter. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And this body metaphor is used to describe the church throughout scripture, specifically here in in 1 Corinthians 12. And it's an important word that we are members of the church, referring to a different body part, if you will. In that 1 Corinthians 12, there's the eye and the hand and the foot, different parts of the body working together, but it calls those parts members. And you and I are members. And membership in a church is important. Now, we live in a world that membership, I think, is a little bit 
tainted of a word or polluted of a word. You can be a member of a country club or you can be a member of a rewards program for your favorite store and you get all sorts of perks and benefits and things like that. But membership here has a different context. Let me ask, how many of you are members of this church? Just raise your hand. About a good, a good half of you or more, which is awesome. Hopefully you guys have come to our uh, Welcome to LT class. If you haven't, my shameless plug, we have them the first Sunday of every month during first service. And we talk about church membership. And man, that timer goes fast every time I'm up here. I actually broke a record last week, 18 verses in 45 minutes. I don't think I've ever done a message and left uh, time on the timer. Um, so you all should have been here last week because tonight's not the night. But really quickly, let's look at the importance of church membership. What does the Bible say about church membership? There's no verse in the Bible that says you need to be a member. There's no verse that says you need to attend a membership class and you know this is what needs to happen. But here's four categories, four uh, areas that the New Testament really advocates for the idea of church membership. Thought he was coming out. It's going away. Good. Just got myself another five minutes. <laughs> so the example of the early church. In the book of Acts, uh, we see that believers were baptized and they were added to the church and they continued together in fellowship, Acts 2.42. We see that there was a list of members in need in the church. 1 Timothy 5.9 talks about uh, a list of widows that were in need. And also in reference to the church, all throughout the book of Acts, we see terminology that fits the idea of a local church. Statements like this, the whole congregation, Acts 6.5. The church in Jerusalem, Acts 8.1. The disciples in Jerusalem, Acts 9.26. In every church, Acts 14.23. The whole church, Acts 15.17. And the elders of the church, Acts 20, verse 17. There was some sort of uh, administrative aspect uh, as well to the church that we can see from this. And it really advocates for church membership. We also see number two, church government. We see that scripture clearly depicts uh, elders having oversight over local churches. And that presupposes a clearly defined church membership. Elders have the responsibility to shepherd the people and to give account for them. But they can only do that when they know who the people are when they know who the members of that specific church are. Again, presupposing this idea of church membership. We're also taught that as individuals, we're supposed to submit to the care and the authorities of the elders. That's Hebrews 13, 17. And so the question for all of us as believers is who are our elders? And I'll use some sort of strong language, but uh, with love, that if we refuse to join a local church and be a member, we can't be obedient to the scripture. Who would your elders be if you don't join a local church, whether it's this church or another church? The third area we see is in church discipline, not the funnest of topics. I always delegate this one when we do our class. I give it to Pastor John. Church discipline. Matthew 18 gives us a guideline for uh, seeking the restoration of a brother who is caught in any sort of sin. It's a four-step process. You're supposed to go to the brother alone, or sister, by the way. You go to that person alone. If they don't hear you, you take a friend or another believer with you. If they don't listen, then you tell it to the church. This is, again, why church membership is important. If you're not a member of the church, who would you tell it to? And I would say that it's, again, sort of impossible to carry out 
this command in Scripture from Matthew 18. And then the last thing we see, and probably the most important in the context of our verses tonight, is the exhortation to mutual edification. The New Testament commands us at least 59 times to practice the one another's. Hopefully you've heard this before. These are things that we are supposed to do to one another, or in a few cases, actually, things we are not to do to one another. And here in Hebrews 10, 24, we have one of those commands. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. But we need each other in the context of the local church. We need to be members of the body. We need to be more than spectators, but we need to be vital members of this church for our spiritual growth. And becoming a member is is really just kind of a formal way of uh, making this sort of agreement. And it really boils down to accountability. I will say sort of tongue-in-cheek in the class, raise your hand if you like accountability. No one's raised their hand yet. Oh, we got a couple. Wow. You guys haven't come to the class. Um, Nobody raises their hand. But that's really the core of church membership. See, if we're not accountable, then we can't be an island to ourselves. We can have no responsibility. We can do our own things. But that's not the Christian life. Living without accountability is not the Christian life. We're all accountable to God, we're told in Romans 14, 12. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And accountability in the context of the local church prepares us for that final day. We're prepared here by being kept accountable by the pastors and elders of this church, but by one another. You know, when you join this church, a lot of people think, well, I'm I'm just joining this organization or, or I'm joining this club and there's these pastors and elders that are over me and I'm just supposed to submit to them. That's a part of it. But 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we are members of one another. So look around the room. Look at all the faces. You're all accountable to one another. You're all accountable to one another. And hopefully we're all encouraging one another and stimulating one another and stirring one another up. And so, brothers and sisters, as we end, I just want to remind us of the verses that we looked at. And really an encouragement to myself as much as it is to you, let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of hope that we have without wavering. And let us consider how we can stimulate one another, stir up one another, provoke one another to love and to good deeds, and most importantly, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but all the more as we see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word to us, Lord. Your word is true, it is living, it is active, and it's sharp, Lord. Um, Sometimes we get wonderful verses in the Psalms that bring us comfort and healing and hope. And sometimes, Lord, we get the metaphorical cattle prod that gives us a little bit of incitement, stimulation, or provocation. But Lord, your word is good, your word is true, Lord, we know that you even uh, discipline those whom you love, your children, Lord. If we don't have that, we're, we're illegitimate. We're not children. 
So thank you, Lord, for your loving care and concern over us, for giving us the church, this living organism, this body of believers that is meant for our good, Lord. Help us to carry out these exhortations to one another. Help us to build one another up in our most holy faith, persevering to the end. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name.